Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Blue Grid episode 18. And today with me in LA Air Force PA studio is retired senior master sergeant Tawanda Griffin Greer. She is the former first sergeant and she is a survivor of an active shooter event in 2016 at Lachlan Air Force Base. And you're welcome to check it out, Blue Grid podcast with Abby Schroeder, the wife of killed Colonel Bill Schroeder. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. Thank you so much for coming out to LA Air Force Base. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I always start out with asking questions about your career. I know you just retired a few months ago. So tell us a little bit about your career and what has led you up to this point sitting in this chair. I started in 1994. I'm from North Carolina. And originally, I enlisted as a surgical technician. I was stationed at Travis Air Force Base for about three years decided that I wanted to change of pace, so I went into recruiting service. I was a non-prior service recruiter for seven and a half to eight years in North Carolina, South Carolina. Went to, I was stationed at Shaw Air Force Base after being stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina. So this was my second time back in North Carolina. After being in recruiting service, I went back into the career field of surgical services, and I was a phase one instructor, and I was in charge of the Air Force Surgical Service Phase One program for the Air Force, and I did that for about four years. I decided I wanted to become a first sergeant, so I went to first sergeant school and the state of first sergeant from 2011 until the date I retired in December 2018. So seven years of being a first sergeant. So I've got a little bit of experience doing a little bit of everything in the Air Force. And so here I am. Thank you for sharing. And that leads us right up to the event in 2016. I know partially you retired because it's become difficult for you to, to continue to serve. But let's start with 2016 and with the events that unfolded at Lackland Air Force Base Training Annex. Well, I went from one technical training squadron to another. And so when I was assigned to the 342nd Training Squadron, it was my third tech training unit. I was used to being in tech training. However, this was a little different for me because it was, um, I was over the Special Ops Training Corps. That was, like I said earlier, I'm a medic, so it was a little bit getting used to. The morning of April the 8th, 2016, was a Friday morning, and I had planned to take half the day off. I had a hair appointment scheduled for 12 o'clock. It stands out to me. 
my husband's car was in the shop, so he dropped me off that morning. And I remember saying to him, be back here at 11 o'clock. I don't want to be late for my hair appointment. So it started out as a regular work day. It was a Friday. The weekend was starting just like every other normal day that we go off to work and go off about our business. He had an appointment at SAMSI to have his cast removed from his hand. I had an 8.30 appointment scheduled with this individual. And when you say this individual, that's a member of... Our student, our tech sergeant student, that we were serving the Article 15 on that morning. Um, around 8.20, student showed up at my door at the office, which was normal. This was no different from any other appointment that I had ever had in my five and a half years at that point as a first sergeant. So there was nothing out of the ordinary so far that morning. He came to my door. I was doing my normal morning setup, getting my office situated, getting the paperwork situated. He came in. I asked him to have a seat. I told him, you know, I'm not ready yet. It was just office banter. I haven't had my coffee yet. You have to excuse me. Do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Very polite, very nonchalant, plain affect, no first sergeant. To give a little bit of backstory, this, this individual had gone AWOL for 10 days. Mm-hmm. When he returned, we offered an Article 15 for his 10 days of being AWOL. He turned down that Article 15 and decided he wanted to have a court-martial. Right. So the events between... August 2015 and April 2016 were a series of legal specifics between lawyers, hiring lawyers, firing lawyers, delay tactics, more lawyers, more delay tactics, which took a series of nine months. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to April 2016, he decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and accept a new Article 15. If you offer me an Article 15, I'll go ahead and take it this time. This is where we ended up on April the 8th, 2016. It was odd for us because we were were wondering, okay, all of a sudden you want to take this Article 15. Okay, after all of these things we've been through for the last nine months, now you want to take it. We're not going to ask questions. We're just going to go ahead and get it, get the ball rolling. We worked with legal. We wanted to go ahead and get it done because there were so many delay tactics that were going on in between. We didn't want any more reasons for delay. We normally do not serve any disciplinary or non-judicial punishments on Fridays. That is one of the things that, you know, first sergeants and commanders try not to do. However, with this individual, we wanted to get it done. We wanted to get it over with. We were done with the delays. Friday, 8 o'clock. You know, 8.30 first thing in the morning. So we decided that that was going to be the day. He got there. Again, I told him, we've already been through this. Do you have any questions? I'll go over the specifics with you if you have questions, but I'm going to, here's the new paperwork. I've got it right here. If you got any particulars, then we'll go over it. He didn't have any questions. At this time, I was in and out of my office. When I look back at the many opportunities in the the series of events that happened that morning, I'm in awe of how many opportunities there were to change things or how things could have happened differently. I was in and out of my office two to three times that morning before anything even happened. I went out of my office. I said, I'll be right back. Let me go see if he's ready. I walked out of my office. I walked down the hall. The commander's door was closed. I came back into my office and I said, he's not ready. You know, we'll just sit here a little while and we'll wait. 
So I sat down at my desk, and he sat across from my desk, and the door was open. And I noticed that he did get up, and he walked toward the door, and he closed the door. It didn't strike me as odd because people who come to my office want privacy. They need their privacy when they're in my office, and it doesn't strike me as odd if somebody gets up and walks over and closes the door. I'm thinking he had a question. He figured out a question or he wanted to talk to me about something. I didn't even look up. It didn't even occur to me that there was anything happening. So I'm still doing what I'm doing. I hear a sound that I've never heard before. It didn't click with me, so I happened to look up, And at this point is when I saw him pulling this, it was like he had already pulled the weapon out of his waistband and he was putting the clip in it. And in a split second, my mind is trying to focus on what it is that I'm seeing. And so I'm taking in what feels like minutes, which is actually seconds. And I notice the door is closed. There's no windows in my door. So no one knows what's happening in my office now. There's no windows in my office. There's no windows in my doors. We are completely isolated with what's happening. And I look up at him and I remember saying two words. My first words to him were, really? Hmm. That's all I could get out. And he had his weapon aimed at me and he says, yes, first sergeant. That's all he said. And my mind is trying to wrap around what he says. And I still can't believe what's happening. So my second question to him was, seriously? He says, yes, First Sergeant. Mm -hmm. Again, no demeanor. There's nothing behind his voice. His emotion hasn't changed. No emotion. No emotion, no anger, nothing. The same as he has always been when he's come to my office. And I said, okay, I'm thinking to myself, now in my mind, I'm saying a a silent prayer to myself. I'm saying, Lord, if you deem fit, if I'm worthy, get me out of this situation. Choose the right words. Don't let me say anything or do anything stupid. It's all I got. So I look up at him and I said, what do you need from me? What can I do? And he looks at me and he says, unfortunately, it's too late for that first sergeant. That's all he says. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, when I, when I looked up at him and I saw this weapon, I literally felt adrenaline, fear, drain, I felt the, f- the feeling of, if you could see me go pale, I feel like you would have seen that. I felt drainage, mm-hmm. like fear, just leave my body. And I became very aware of my actions, what was around me. I saw everything in my mind's eye. I had a keyboard in front of me with my IM up. I had a phone in front of me. I had the desk phone in front of me. I had everything here, and I'm thinking, there's no way I can call for help. I can't do anything because he was watching every move. 
Sure. And he was aimed at me, so I couldn't, I couldn't make a move that would alert anybody or anything. So I, all I could do was sit there. And I said, well, what do you need? And he said, I need you to call the commander and tell him to come to your office. And I remember thinking to myself, and I know I shook my head. I said, I said to myself, don't ask me to do that. And I'm looking in his face, and he's looking at mine, and I know that he's not kidding. And I'm thinking to myself, don't make me do that. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But I also know if I don't do that, he's going to shoot me. And I'm deducting in my mind. If I don't, he's going to shoot me, and then that leaves a hallway full of people vulnerable because he's going to go get him. He's going to go find him regardless. If I don't do what he wants me to do, I contemplate for a minute. So I see that he's not kidding, and I reach over, and I pick up my phone, and I dial the commander's office. And thank God it was busy. I think he was on the phone at the time. And I hung up the phone, and I said, Were you happy to hear a busy signal? I was very happy to hear a busy signal. However, I didn't know if he would believe me. I didn't know if he thought I was stalling or not. So I don't know if I put the phone on speaker so that he could hear that it was busy. I hung up the phone, and I said, it's busy. And he said, okay, we'll wait. And it was that awkward silence of waiting, which felt like minutes. It was probably 30 seconds to 45 seconds. And we're just looking at each other in awkward silence. And what is going on through your mind? I don't know. I don't know what was going through my mind right there. Just, what now? I don't know what's, what's going to happen, what's happening. Probably 45 seconds later, a minute later, he says, try it again. So I pick up the phone, and Colonel Schrader answers the phone. And normally, a first sergeant and commander's relationship is very relaxed. You work together for so long, and you work together so closely, you have a very relaxed relationship. Normally, I would call and say, hey, sir, how you doing? We're ready. I needed him to know something was going on. I needed him to know without me saying something. I couldn't give him any distress words without alerting this person and giving him reason to panic. So I did the best I could to give Colonel Schrader an inkling of something was serious. So I changed my voice, my demeanor. I became very, very professional. I acted in a manner that he has not known me to act in. Mm -hmm. So when he picked up the phone, I said, good morning, sir, this is your first sergeant calling. And I've never done that before. And he says, hey, sir, what's going on? And I said, sir, I need you to come to my office. And he says, well, we have an 830 appointment. We're still good for our appointment, right? I said, yes, sir. Okay, well, is everything set? We have all our paperwork ready? Yes, sir. He pauses. So he may be starting to realize right. something is off. He's, I can tell by his pauses, he's like, that's weird, you know. And then he says, is he here? Mm. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I need you to come to my office. Mm-hmm. Is he in your office? His voice changes. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. 
Is he on a speaker? No, I have him online. Is he in your office? Yes, sir. Okay, I'll be down. And at that point, he hangs up, I hang up. My heart is beating out of my chest. And my emotions are building up inside because I'm thinking, don't come down here. Don't come down here. I don't, don't, don't come down here. And I don't know what, what he's doing. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what, how long it took him. However, my door is closed. At this point, I'm trying to figure out, I got to get out of here. I got to find a way not to get him here. I got to figure out something to do. So I know that my door locks from the inside, and it's locked on the outside. So I said to this person, I have to get up and unlock the door. I'm thinking of ways, can I get to the door so I can get out, so I can run out, so I can warn, so I can keep him from coming in. I'm trying to figure out how can I get out of here? What can I do? What are the best ways that I can do this? And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, my door is locked. He's not going to be able to come in. So he gets up, and he goes over to the door, and he unlocks the little round lock. And I said, no, that's not going to do it. I have to open the door. And so he gets back up. He goes over, and he opens the door. Now, I wanted the door to be open a crack. You have to actually open the door handle and pull it open for it to be open. I wanted to be the one to do that because I was thinking I could get to the door, I could crack it a little bit, and maybe I could get out. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm wondering, do I have that opportunity to do that? Because I know if I do that, he's going to be right behind me. But I also know that if I do that, other people are going to start coming out because I'm going to get out and start yelling. People are going to come out, and I'm going to subject people to whatever is going to be happening. That's not a good idea either. He got up instead, and he opened the door because I guess he's two steps ahead of me. He opens the door, and he cracks it maybe two and a half, three inches, and he sits back down. So I'm still sitting in that same position that I was in, and I'm like, okay, that didn't work. So however long it was later, I hear Colonel Schrader coming down the hall. Now I hear him coming down the hall and doing everything in my power not to just bawl because everything is rising up. In, you're you're in, emotional. I'm very emotional. And when he comes to my door, he stops. And thankfully, because he saw that crack in the door, he stops at the door and he sees... He can see me, but he can't see the person who's behind the door because he's sitting behind the door. So I'm sitting at my desk with my hands on the desk, and I'm clenched, and I'm facing this individual. And when he comes to the door, I don't turn my head. I don't look at him. I just turn my eyes over, and I look up at him. And when I look up at him... I feel my mouth trembling. I feel the tremble. And I look over. And then I look back over. I'm trying to let him know I got something happening here and I'm not looking at, you know, not. So he knows now something is happening. You felt you communicated something I to him. I felt like I communicated something because 
He then pushes the door in, and when he pushes the door in, he looks immediately to the chair. And when he sees this guy sitting in the chair, and he looks at his hand and he sees that weapon, he, just, he still steps into the room, and he closes the door behind him. And I'm thinking, close the door behind you. Again, now we're all in this room. I understand why you don't want anybody out there. You don't want anybody subject to whatever is happening in here. He closes the door behind him, and he takes the seat. There are two chairs over here. He takes the seat here, and the weapon is now aimed at him. It's not aimed at me anymore. And this individual starts saying, you're an arrogant son of a... You've ruined airmen's lives, and I've sat here, and I've watched you ruin people's lives, and you make decisions based on... He's just talking, and he's blaming Colonel Schrader for ruining numerous airmen's lives and not allowing them to go through the pipeline and ending their careers. And he's not hostile. He's not raising his voice. He's not agitated. He's his normal demeanor. However, he's escalating with his words. His words are becoming angry. How long is going on now? It only went on for maybe 20 seconds because at that point, Colonel Schrader steps in and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Let's talk about you. Look at what you've done. Look at the role that you've played in this. And what I think was happening was Colonel Schrader was interrupting him because he was escalating, but he was also interrupting him to stop the mental process of whatever he was thinking so that he could intervene. Because if you can imagine what I saw all at the same time were a number of things happening. He started talking. He advanced. At this time, they're both advancing at the same time. The weapon is firing. I hear the engagement. I'm seeing the engagement. I'm hearing the weapon go off. I'm hearing the bullets hit. I hear the sounds he makes when they hit. At the same time, I'm hearing him say, sure, go. He's telling me, while I've got this, I need you to go. That's my interpretation. Get out of here. What stays in my mind is there might have been five feet between me and the door. Now I have to get around my desk. The door was closed. Between my desk and the door, three shots were fired before I even hit the door. I had to stop and open the door. And in the process of me opening the door, of course, I run into the door. So it kind of stops me. And then I go out. But three shots were fired before I even hit the door. And as I was leaving, my psyche hears those shots hitting him. And the sounds, I know they hit him because I heard them hit him and I heard the sounds of him being shot. As I'm running down the hall, now people are coming out of their offices because they're hearing gunshots. And I'm running out of the office and I'm saying, active shooter, call 911, 
get back in your office, get back in your office, call 911, we have an active shooter. I'm doing that and I'm running down this long hallway and I hear six more shots fired. I'm counting them, I don't know why, but I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what's happening back here, but I also don't know if he's shooting at me. I don't know if he's knowing that I'm getting away or if he doesn't want me to get away, but they're so loud that I don't know if he's coming behind me, but I'm counting shots that I don't even realize that I'm counting. And I run down the hallway and I run down another hallway and I come around the corner and the first empty office that I see, I go in and I close the door and I think I turn the light on and I turn the light off and I close the door and I, you know, I stand behind the door and I don't like that position and move to another position and I don't like that position and so I move to another position and, and I don't have a, I have my, I remember I have my government cell on my hip and go to the desk and I pick up the phone and I call 911 and I say, we have an active shooter and I tell them the building and I say, you know, my commander's been shot. I tell them who, it, who did it. I tell them that it's in my office because at this point, I don't know if I'm gonna live. I don't know if he's behind me. I don't know if he's gonna look for me, but I know that if I die, if something happens to me, I want them to know who did it, where it was, where to find where it happened. I want to give them all the information that I know. Commander's been shot. He's in my office. This is who did it. I don't know his status. This is how many shots were fired. I don't know what's happening. I just know you need to get here. And I told him the building. I hang up. The next call I make, I take my cell phone out. I have a best friend that was working in the group headquarters building. And I text him because I knew he works upstairs, and I said, run downstairs, let the group commander know, Colonel's been shot, this is who did it, so-and-so. He texts me back, I guess he's downstairs now, he's with Colonel Sherman, can you confirm? Yes. Can you confirm Colonel Sherman's status? No. Can you confirm he was actually shot? Yes. Can you confirm it was this person? Yes. You know, all of these, and I sit and I wait, and everything is quiet. I didn't know how long it was at the moment, but later I find out, three minutes later, seemed like forever, three minutes later, I hear, if you're in an office, come out. No, I, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I don't know, again, I don't know if it's him. I don't know who's calling, and I'm not coming out. And then I hear somebody saying, shirt, I'm not coming out. I don't know who's calling me. I'm not coming out. And then I hear dogs and a police radio. And I heard again, this is security forces. If you're in an office, slowly come out of the office. And so I knew that it was safe to open the door. And I came out, and they were then evacuating the building. They were moving us to a rescue point. And I still didn't know what anybody's status was. We thought he was loose. We didn't know where he was. How did you feel in the moment when you heard the police, the radios, and the dogs? Relieved. Relieved. Relieved that they were there, but I was still afraid that he was loose. I was afraid that he was still out there somewhere, um, ready to 
pick me off or snipe me or something when we were out in the open. And then I, I went through the whole, I don't know where he is. We have to go to trial. And, you know, I have to testify. And, I mean, he knows that I can tell what happened. He knows that I was the one there. He knows I got away. And I can, I'm the only one that can tell what happened in that room. So I'm, I was feeling like a target at the moment. And I felt very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable, because we had no idea what was happening. They had not checked the office at the time. They couldn't get into the office because it was locked, because the door had closed. Somehow, in their struggle, the door closed behind me, and the door was locked, and they didn't have access. So they had to come find me to get the key to my office for them to have access to it. When we finally were able to come back up, we were never allowed back in the building, I kept asking, is he okay? Is he okay? And one of the prior pararescuemen who was up there with me, they put him in charge of being with me. You stay with her, just stick with her. He had been in. He was one of the pararescuemen who went in to try to recover. When I saw him, I kept saying, is he okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? And he looked at me and he said, no. And that's when I lost it. I lost it at that moment because I, I, I held out hope the whole time. I had hoped that he was just injured and that in the struggle he may have overcome but when he told me, he said, I personally went in and checked vitals and I, just from his injuries and what I saw and, you know, where the wounds were, he said he didn't make it. And I was completely devastated. I was completely devastated from that point on because I felt like I left him there. I felt like I left him. I felt like I called him to his death. I feel like I let him down. I struggled for a long time with, why me? Why did I get away? And he didn't. What could I have done differently? Should I have done anything differently? I've gone through this story and, and my scenarios and in my head, oh, every situation, every scenario over and over and over again and say, I could have done this. I should have done that. What if I would have done this? What if I would have done that? And I've come to the deduction that more people would have died had I done something differently. Myself and more people would have died rather than just one. And I don't mean just one as if that was not important. I mean, 175 people were in that building that day. And we got 175 people out of that building. All of our students that were upstairs on the second floor, all of the staff, all of the cadre that were at work that day and in class that day were safe. And we lost one. We lost our commander. We lost our leader. I don't know what I could have done differently. I don't know if I could have done anything differently. I did. I blamed myself for a long time because 
we, as first sergeants, and I was a first sergeant for seven years, in all seven years, it's been ingrained in us that we protect our commander. We're there for our commander. We take care of our commander. We keep him out of jail. We keep him safe. We don't let any, you know, we stand between our commander and the, the offender. And I felt I failed. I felt that I failed that day. And I questioned, did I do everything that I could to protect my commander? And even though we did manage to save 175, did I save? I lost one, and I lost a very important one. Afterwards, you have read comments about yourself on social media and various sources that implied you didn't do enough. What was that like for you to already struggle with that guilt, the survivor's guilt, and then read those comments? It was tough to read comments about that. Everybody's going to have their opinions, and the first thing you want to do is defend yourself when you read comments about yourself. And I wanted to get on there and just, I, I am grateful for the group of first sergeants that rallied around me and the friends that rallied around me who were there that day, who got on for me, that said, you don't know her. You weren't there. We were there. She made all the right moves. I didn't have to get on there and defend myself. They did. But to read people saying, I, I read everything from, if she were a man, this would have never happened. She should have disobeyed his order. And when he told her to run, she should have stayed and she should have disobeyed that and she should have fought with him. Even if that meant going down with your commander, you should have done it. They sure don't make first sergeants like they used to. Wow. That was hurtful. It made me question my own ability. I was very confident in my first sergeant abilities. I was very secure in my job. I knew what I was doing. I was seasoned. I had been doing it for a number of years. I never would have second-guessed myself. But from that point on, coupled with what I went through, coupled with my own inner thoughts of, I don't trust my own instincts anymore. I've totally lost my own confidence in my own ability to do my job. And that was tough. And it took a lot out of me as a first sergeant. And it became difficult to continue doing my job. But the day that everything happened, I'm gonna tell you, I was in the field when they were doing recovery. And I said, you could have it, take it. I don't want it, you can have these diamonds. I don't wanna do this job anymore, I'm done. But I knew that was my emotions talking. After being out for a week and a half, trying to mentally recover, I knew I wasn't done. I wasn't finished. I knew where my heart lies. I knew my mission was to take care of my people and I went back to work because I wasn't the only one that something happened to that day. I, I have a whole squadron full of people who were hurting, who went through something, not just me. 
So I still have a responsibility. I'm still a leader of this squadron. And I have to be there for them. So inside, I wanted to continue to serve them and take care of them, whereas they thought they were taking care of me. So I felt a little, not forced, but pushed to get back to work. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was with a group of individuals who are strong and tough and resilient, who are used to seeing injury and death on the battlefield. And their job is to take care of their wingman, be the wingman, drag them off, patch them up, or yes, we lost them, but we got to get back out there and we will deal with it later. But we got to stay in the game. They had two days off. We closed the schoolhouse for two days, and then two days later, they were back at work. And here I was a week and a half later, and I was still off. And I was like, no, that's not fair. So I pushed, and I pushed to get back in. And it was tough because I went back in with an office that was being demolished and biohazard gear in the hallway and a makeshift office and students still walking through the hallways. And, you know, every time somebody walked past my office and they were unescorted and they, had, they still walked around with their weapons because that's their job. They're still in training. It was tough. But I felt like if I didn't go back to work, people would question. Mm. When I did go back to work, people still questioned. Oh, she must be fine. Mm. She's doing really good. She's back at work. Mm -hmm. That was tough. It was tough because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know how I was supposed to act. I had good days and I had bad days. I, I, when, I, when I cried, people were like, wow, you're still... <laughs> you're still not over it. You're still not over it? Mm. Three weeks later, you're still not over it? Mm. However, if you caught me at one of those times where I was smiling, wow, you must be doing really good. Mm. So I didn't know if I... I felt guilty for having a good day. Mm -hmm. I felt guilty for having a good moment. I, I was so confused inside for trying to move forward. How did you? I stayed busy. Um, I PCSed. I PCSed. I PCSed to a place that no one knew me or my story. I PCS to a place where only my sponsor and the command chief knew what had happened. My command chief had worked for Colonel Schreyer at one point, and he was very understanding, and he said, this is your story to tell whoever you want. It's not my business to tell anybody. Nobody here knows unless you tell them. I needed that. I needed the anonymity. So when I was assigned to a very small unit because they felt I needed kind of a, let's restart. I was assigned to a very small unit so that I could slowly get my feet wet again. It was the best move because I could still do my first sergeant duties without having the weight of 
the manning of a technical training unit. I had about 25 to 30 people, and most people said, why is this senior master sergeant over 30 people? You know, I, I had the questions, but the answers were, it's a manning thing. Mm -hmm. we, we, got, we got to put her somewhere, but for now she's right here. Mm -hmm. The command chief at the time says, we need you for bigger and better things at different squadrons, but when you're ready. We need you at the group level, but that requires six squadrons and 400 people, but when you're ready. I wasn't ready for a long time because I didn't trust my abilities. I didn't think that any commander wanted to work with me, knowing what happened. I felt like the commanders didn't trust me with their lives. I felt like they all knew what happened. Once they knew my name and word spreads, they knew. They had talked. I didn't think that they could trust me to do my job. When it took me at least seven months into my new unit to do my first Article 15 again. And the first time I had to do one, I had to have a first sergeant sit with me. I knew what I was doing, but I couldn't face a student by myself yet. The first time a student had to report to me in their blues, I had a panic attack. He walked into my office. He had no idea. He knocked. He walked into my office, and I saw him. I stood up, and I walked out. I just left. I just left him there. And I went out in the hall, and I, I paced. And I was like, I don't want to be in there. I'm not going in there. I can't do it. I don't want to be alone with him. I'm not going in there. I'm not closing the door. And I was sweating. And I had a commander at the time that said, I got it, no worries. And he called in another one of the NCOs, the senior NCOs, and said, take it, she's good. Let her do what she's doing, but you take this for her. And I, and I was like, no, 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 I can do it. He's like, no, let him do it this time. And that is the first time I had to sit back and question, can I do this? Can I do this job? If I can't do my job, if I can't give 100%, if I can't do my job, why am I here? I have to be able to do my job. I have to be able to f perform. And if I can't perform, I don't deserve to be a first sergeant. Did you at some point decide to seek professional help? Late. Late in the game. Why did you wait? Because I thought I could handle it myself. I am a known internalizer. I deal with everything inside. I rationalize it all myself. It may have been a month and a half before I decided to get professional help. I was going to work, and it was tough, and I felt that I was a leader, and I was in a leadership position, so I didn't have the room to show emotion, no matter what I was feeling, no matter what I was going through, and if I felt something during the day, or when I was having one of those moments, I couldn't afford for other people to see me break down. Mm -hmm. Because I felt that if I don't have myself or my life together, no one would trust me with theirs and their issues. You're supposed to have that outlet to go home and speak with your spouse and have your emotional breakdown with your spouse. 
But at the time, my spouse was also having difficulties with what happened. And he was innerly angry at a lot of things, how it happened, when it happened, what happened, how it was responded to, what was going on. At the time, I was still doing interviews. I was still doing reenactments. I was still answering questions. And he was just angry at the world because of so many things that were happening. And I felt if I showed emotion at home, it would make him angry because he couldn't do anything about it. And so when I showed emotion, he would become angry and it would cause a rift between us. Mm -hmm. So I didn't feel like I could show emotion at home. I had to keep it in at home too. So I finally decided I needed that outlet. I needed to find that place that I could just go and be emotional or be angry Mm-hmm. or just sit, or just have that space where I could just let it out. Was it helpful? It was helpful. It was helpful because I could go there and I could say the things that I needed to say that I didn't feel bad for saying out loud. Mm-hmm. I could go there and I could cry and be emotional and get things off my chest and an hour later wipe my face And when I go back out the door, put my Wonder Woman suit back on and keep going. What was the the darkest, the loneliest moment in this journey for you? I still have those dark and lonely moments. My darkest and loneliest moments are, I feel forgotten. I feel like I don't exist. I feel like this happened three years ago, and it's as if I was never part of the story. No one's ever asked me from my point of view or my perspective other than investigators. Investigators have asked me what happened. No one in the last three and a half years have ever asked me, what was your point of view? What did you see? What happened? What do you feel? And I don't understand why. I was there. I saw this happen. I felt this happen. I heard this happen. I was in this room. I lost someone. I was there. And that hurts. It really hurts. And I don't understand why. I, I'm told that I did all the right things. I'm told that I'm not at fault, but I feel like I'm being punished for losing him. And I don't understand why. If I am, tell me why. I would understand that, but I was there. I am the only one that can tell you about it. I'm the only one that is around. I feel that because I was not shot, because I was not injured, because I have all of my faculties, I don't suffer. I don't count. I don't count. I don't count. It doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter what I went through. It doesn't matter that I was there. It doesn't matter what actions I took. I didn't get hurt physically. It doesn't matter that I hurt mentally. It doesn't, people don't understand. I live with this every single day, every single day, whether it be in the form of having to take my medication every single day or the thoughts every single day or the guilt every single day, the aftermath, and people who think that they're sparing me, we don't want to bring it up, or we don't want to, you know, we don't want to stir up bad memories. You're not going to stir it up. It's already there. Mm. You can't stir up something that I live with every single day. You wish people ask you about what happened or about you? I don't wish people would ask me, but I want people to acknowledge that I exist. Mm. But I don't want to, I'm suffering for nothing. For what? You know, I suffer in silence. You know, I I wake up and I I put on the, the face and I go throughout my day and I do my thing. And inside, I deal with my own mess. What helps you cope every day? I have a strong support system. I have a very strong support system. I have a very, very strong faith. I believe in God. I believe I was saved for a reason. I believe that day when I prayed, that if I deem to be worthy and ask, if you deem me worthy, get me out of this situation. And because I was removed from that situation, I still have a purpose. And that's what gets me through the days. I'm, I'm, I'm finding that purpose. I'm slowly finding that purpose. And that purpose is not to let Colonel Schrader's death be in vain. Something has to change. Something has to change with policies. Something has to change with procedures. Something has to change with the way we do our jobs. Something has to change with the invisible wounds piece. Something has to change with how we view PTSD and veterans and how we treat our veterans and how we treat people with PTSD and how we treat people with invisible wounds and how just because you can't see a person's wounds doesn't mean that they're not suffering. How people thinking or how they have well intentions end up being worse, making things worse. What do you mean by that? I've been told that People don't ask me, people don't talk to me, people don't mention it because they don't want to bring things up. Stir things up for you. They don't want to stir things up for me. Mm -hmm. So they just don't say anything. Mm -hmm. Instead of telling me that, I get silence. And when you get silence, you feel alone. Mm -hmm. And when you feel alone, you feel like you don't matter. You don't belong. You don't belong. You lose identity. 
And when you have a loss of identity and you lose who you were and you feel like I no longer count, I no longer matter, I asked myself when I retired, I said, who am I now? What were the last 25 years for? What were the last seven years for? As far as being a first sergeant, I, what have I done all of this for only to be erased at the end? So we need to be very, very cognizant of how we treat people who have invisible wounds because we need to make sure that they understand that those people count too. So for those service members who are struggling with invisible wounds or just going through tough times, what would be your recommendations? Find a group. Find a support group. Talk to people who are suffering from the same feelings mm -hmm. so that you know that you're not alone, so that you know you're not by yourself, and so that you know that there are other people out there who have the same thoughts and feelings as you, and collectively together do something about it. Come up with a plan, make a support group, make a bigger support group, um, start, a, start a nonprofit, but do something that's going to help others. That's what I plan to do. I plan to reach out and I, I'm, I'm in the works of looking into starting a nonprofit, especially for female veterans. To me, that is what I think is lacking out there, is support for female veterans and PTSD sufferers, because I don't think it gets enough attention. Because when I started looking for invisible wounds, support groups, I either did not find them or I found them, and they were mostly for men. Mm. And they weren't comfortable to be in, mm -hmm. because they were PTSD sufferers from combat, and deployments, and I didn't fit in there. That's not where mine came from. So I didn't feel like I had anything in common with that. So I have to take a different direction. I had a hard time trusting myself. I had a hard time trusting my own instincts. I knew something was wrong with this particular person. I told many people something was wrong with this particular person. I told family members, Something just wasn't right. Something didn't sit right with me. I told um, our first starting council, that's what they're for. We're there to bounce things off of each other. And I think I dominated many of meetings on Wednesday morning. And I said, hey, let me bounce this off of you guys. We got this happening. We got this happening. We got this happening. And I would get some advice from them. I bounced things off of legal. I bounced things off of security forces. And in one instance, I was even told, well, we can't really do anything. He hasn't threatened anybody yet. I, I, I actually let people talk my gut feeling down. You kind of muted your own sense of intuition about I did. this individual listening to others. I did. I did. The squadron leadership felt something. But even we blew it off. I regret that. One of the things I told as an after-action report to the council was work with your commanders, have that safe word, have that conversation about what you would do. 
the most important thing is if you feel something is not right, you need to take it seriously. You need to take your gut instinct and you need to listen to it. But what ended up happening was as I continued to be a first sergeant, I went to my new squadrons and I was afraid to do my job. I would get classic red flags would shoot up. And I was put in a position where I could say, hey, something's not right. We got some classic telltale symptoms here. And you know what I would get? You're just being paranoid. Mm. Because of what you went through, you're a little bit trigger happy. Mm. No pun intended, you know, so to speak. Mm. You're, you're being a little paranoid. Just, you know, bring it down a notch. So I was muffled. Or I could see the red flags showing up and choose not to say anything because I didn't want to look paranoid. And that became a, a problem with me because I was like, if I say something, I look paranoid and people don't take me seriously because they think that I'm, I'm, I'm making things up because I, I, what I've gone through, but I'm afraid not to say anything because last time I didn't say anything, it ended up being detrimental. Yeah. So you get caught between a rock and a hard place. How'd you get over that? I said, I don't care what I look like. My job is to let you know. So I would always preface it with my new commanders and say, you know what, I might sound crazy, but my job is to tell you what I think and what I feel. You can do what you want with it. But you can never say that I didn't tell you what I thought. And so I did anyway. And I honestly got to the point where I didn't care if I looked paranoid because I was never, ever going to be put in a position where I did not speak up when I saw something was wrong. I would rather be wrong about that situation than not say anything at all and be in another situation like that. All first sergeants hope and wish and pray that we get through our first sergeant assignment without losing a, an airman. Most of the time we're thinking we don't want to lose an airman to suicide or deployment matter. You never ever assume that you're going to lose an airman to friendly fire to another airman, especially your commander. That shook me. I think the worst thing about all of this was how my confidence was absolutely shaken in my faith in us, in my brothers and sisters, in our uniform. Because I never assumed, I never, ever, ever would have imagined that on a Friday morning, we leave for work and within an hour, we would be facing the situation we would be facing. You expect that on a deployment. You expect that you know, downrange. You don't expect that 30 minutes into your workday. 
you absolutely don't, and you certainly don't expect that from one of your own. Yeah. So your world was unexpectedly shaken at the end of your career, and you ended up retiring ultimately because you lost confidence in your ability to do your job. So I'm thinking, you know, you, somebody who had so much experience and probably so much confidence in what you did, even for somebody like you to lose confidence in what you did, do you have any words of wisdom for those who are struggling, service members who are struggling with their jobs today, maybe don't have as much experience as you had at the time that you decided to leave? I do. I can't answer that without adding a piece. It wasn't just the job that made me decide to stop. I think if it were just the job, I may have continued pushing, pushing, pushing. But about six to nine months after the shooting, my oldest son had a seizure out of the blue for no reason. We couldn't figure out why. And then he continued to have seizures. So he was found to have a brain tumor, and that brain tumor turned into brain cancer. So I had already left San Antonio. He was still in San Antonio, and I was in North Carolina. And not only was I dealing with the aftermath of the shooting, but I was settling into the new squadrons, trying to get my feet up under me as far as continuing being a first sergeant, but now I'm trying to handle my son's medical care from a distance. And I'm trying to handle his doctors and his care and his finances and his insurance. And, you know, I've got oncologists and research teams on conference calls but at the same time, I've got staff meetings. I've got appointments. I remember one day I was sitting in my car on a conference call with his doctor and his neurologist. And I've got people knocking on the window of my car saying, hey, we got a staff meeting in 10 minutes. We, you know, so-and-so is here to see you. So-and-so needs this. Did you do the so-and-so report? And I'm like, Give me a minute, I'm trying to handle something. And I think that was my turning point when I realized I need to handle myself and I need to handle my family. I need to handle my personal business too. And for a while, my distraction was taking care of everybody else. When it was just my issues, I could put it off because when I got up and put my uniform on, I would go to work and I'm taking care of everybody else and I could put mine off into the background. But now my son needs me and I need me and my son needs me and my troops need me. And I got to the point where I could not give 100% to my squadron and I could not give 100% to my family and myself. Somebody was suffering mm-hmm. and I didn't think it was fair. So at that moment is when I said, if I can't give 100% to my unit, I need to pull back. Because my family has got to get 100%. I've got to give 100%. That's my advice to 
people who are suffering and trying to make it work as long as you can still give and you can give 100% do so if it's going to impact yourself or your family you got to make a decision and you shouldn't suffer your family shouldn't suffer you got to have to come to a point where you have to make a decision because i'm always going to believe that your air force family has to have 100% your unit can't be productive and move forward if you're not giving them 100% and it's not fair to them or you if you can't do that and it's certainly not fair to your own family or yourself if you can't do that so know when to take a knee it's not a permanent thing all the time maybe you just need to take 2 weeks maybe you just need to take some time to take some downtime and handle your business and then come back refreshed but if that 2 weeks doesn't do it for you and you need more time you need to start making some decisions as to what's important to you and at this time mine was as much as i wanted to shoot for and continue on and make chief and make a career and keep going i knew that that wasn't going to be in the cards for me what i want and what i needed were were two different things at the time mm-hmm. what i wanted to do was continue my career what i needed to do was take care of my family in myself because i have a feeling i would have pushed and pushed and pushed and somebody was going to suffer for it probably myself no thank you for that answer is there anything that i'm not asking you that you wish to share i want to say thank you for having me as i stated earlier this was a wonderful opportunity to come here and be heard i wanted to make sure that people understood from my point of view what really happened what my thought processes were how the decisions that i made that day didn't come easy they weren't spur of the moment decisions every single thought was methodical and strategic and even though from the outside looking in it looks like i was a coward and just ran from the outside looking in it looks like shots fired she dodged she's out that's so far from the truth all of the actions that i tried to make with concentrator i need people to understand that I really and truly believe he knew something was happening and I thoroughly believe that he knew what he was coming down and walking into because we had the vocal interaction we had the eye contact I saw I I saw his moves his intentional moves his intentional actions I saw him look at that weapon and intentionally close the door behind him I saw his thought processes when he spoke when he moved when he engaged no one on this earth can possibly imagine what happened that day in that room but I can I'm thankful to to him for that. 
I'm not here to tell the story about how he, how he died. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for him. I'm alive because of him. I know that. I'm here because I know that he deserves to be honored. And I want people to know that he knew. And I want to say we worked together to the end. Thank you. And thank you. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v dot f-e-d-o-t-o-v-a dot mil at mail dot